0: following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. All right, good morning. Welcome to Fellowship Bible this morning. I am very happy to see all of you and many of your smiling faces. Ezekiel and the 10th chapter, please. As I complete the reading, I'll we'll invite the men to come forward to take up the offering this morning. <clears throat> I want to remind you of something I pointed out last time when we read in Ezekiel, and that's in chapter 9, actually, in verse number 3. Chapter 9, verse 3 says, Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub. Remember, Ezekiel is in a vision in the temple in Jerusalem, watching what's going on there and it says the glory of God had risen up from the cherub where it had been to the threshold of the temple. Now we carry on in chapter 10. And I looked, and there in the firmament that was above the head of the cherubim, there appeared something like a sapphire stone, having the appearance of the likeness of a throne. Then he spoke to the man clothed with linen and said, Go in among the wheels under the cherub. Fill your hands with coals of fire from among the cherubim and scatter them over the city. And he went in as I watched. Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the temple when the man went in and the cloud filled the inner court. Now you might wonder, by the way, just a little grammatical note, the cherubim are plural. That I am ending is like, S in English, but in Hebrew, it's the I am ending. And so you might wonder, the cherubim were? Yes, they were. It was they. So they were standing on the south side of the temple when the man went in and the cloud filled the inner court. Verse 4, then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and paused over the threshold of the temple. And the house was filled with the cloud and the court was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory. Chapter 9, verse 3, remember that. That appearance of God was there at the threshold. Now it's over the threshold. And the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard even in the outer court, like the voice of Almighty God when he speaks. Then it happened when he commanded the man clothed in linen, saying, Take fire from among the wheels, from among the cherubim, that he went in and stood beside the wheels. And the cherub stretched his hand from among the cherubim, to the fire that was among the cherubim and took some of it and put it into the hands of the man clothed with linen, who took it and went out. The cherubim appeared to have the form of a man's hand under their wings. And when I looked, there were four wheels by the cherubim, one wheel by one cherub and another wheel by each other cherub. The wheels appeared to have the colors of a barrel stone. As for their appearance, all four looked alike, as it were a wheel in the middle of a wheel. Now, you're beginning to get the sense that we're going back to what Ezekiel saw in the first chapters of the book. Remember that very fantastic vision he saw, the wheels and the wheels and the movement of this glory of God. It says in verse 11, When they went, they went toward any of their four directions. They did not turn aside when they went, but followed in the direction the head was facing. They did not turn aside when they went. And their whole body with their back, their hands, their wings, and the wheels that the four had were full of eyes all around. As for the wheels, they were called in my hearing, wheel. Each one had four faces. The first face was the face of a cherub. The second face was the face of a man. The third, the face of a lion. And the fourth, the face of an eagle. And the cherubim were lifted up. This, well, here's Ezekiel's conclusion. You're all confused. This was the living creature I saw by the river Kibar earlier on in the book. This is an appearance of the glory of God attended by his angelic cherubim. When the cherubim went, the wheels went beside them, and when the cherubim lifted their wings to mount up from the earth, the same wheels also did not turn from beside them. When the cherubim stood still, the wheels stood still, and when one was lifted up, the other lifted itself up, for the spirit of the living creature was in them. Then the glory of the Lord, that's what is riding upon this fantastic structure, if you will, then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. The cherubim lifted their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. When they went out, the wheels were beside them, and they stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. This is the living creature I saw under the God of Israel by the river Kibar, and I knew they were cherubim. Each one had four faces and each one four wings, and the likeness of the hands of a man was under their wings. And the likeness of their faces was the same as the faces which I had seen by the river Kibar, their appearance and their persons. They each went straight forward. Now, it's easy to get kind of caught up in that and miss what's happening. What's happening? What's happening? God's glory is leaving the temple. Remember how it came when Solomon prayed in 1 Kings chapter 8? The glory of the Lord filled the temple. Now he's leaving. Why is he leaving? Because of the abominations of the children of Israel, the idolatries that they were doing in the temple and and all those things we read about in the prior chapters. And he's going to the threshold, above the threshold, out to the east gate and beyond. And never has he yet, in that form, returned. However, he did return in another form, and the Lord Jesus suddenly appeared at his temple. This is a very significant event in the history of Israel, and so we trust the Lord will help us to understand that. We finished our series in the book of Titus last week. And often when that occurs, when I finish a series in a book, I think about what subject matter I might take that would enhance or follow on from the book or something that the church needs at the moment and uh, maybe do work on some of that for a week or two or a few and then uh, before taking up another series. And I'd like to do that this morning by introducing it this way. In uh, Titus chapter 2... 11 to 14, we learned about God's grace. And we remember, we defined that and tried to understand it. It's his unmerited favor, and really it's his ill-merited divine favor. This grace, we said, is a saving grace. Remember, the grace of God, which brings salvation, has appeared to all men there in Titus and It's also a teaching grace. That same grace teaches us to do what? Well, to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts, to live godly and to live soberly in this present age, righteously. And then it's also a forward-looking grace, you remember we said, because we're looking for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, that blessed hope of the church. It's also a sacrificing grace, sacrificing grace because Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from every evil deed and to procure for himself a special people zealous for good works. We also saw that this grace is a purifying grace, purifying grace, meaning that God's design is to make sinners into people who are eager to serve Him by good works. We saw that in chapter 3 and verse 14, chapter 3 and verse number 8, chapter 2 and verse number 14. Just on and on, the book of Titus emphasizes to us that God is eager for us to serve Him and to serve others with good works. In this message, I want to extend on that thought about God's grace and ask ourselves the question, what does God's grace do for us? Mm-hmm. What does God's grace do for us? We're going to talk about the re- restorative and cleansing nature of the grace of God, which I felt as I thought about that, I didn't, I didn't focus on that really too much in the series in Titus, although we saw that uh, in early part of Titus in chapter uh 2 verse, uh, let me see here, where is it? Sorry, chapter 3 rather, I said chapter 2, where we are told that we have been washed, He saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. And I didn't focus on that aspect of God's grace so much, and I wanted to do that this morning by looking at two portions of Scripture with you. The first is in Jeremiah 18. If you turn your Bible to Jeremiah 18, uh, you know, we often focus our preaching on Sunday mornings in the New Testament because that's most directly uh, written to the church, and uh, yet all of Scripture is inspired and profitable for doctrine. Uh, I uh, stuck my head into the uh, Sunday school class here where Miss Reed, not Mrs. Reed, but Miss Reed was teaching, and she had a full house in there. And they were working feverishly on some project of you know, questions that she had given to them. And I, I said, well, give me one of the questions. And so one of them starts looking down through the list of questions. And I'm like, hey, now, don't give me the hardest question. <laughs> They're probably like, well, we got the pastor here. We're going to get some help on this assignment. <laughs> so uh, they asked me the, the question ended up, it was a very good question that they selected was something to the effect of, how would you respond to somebody who says the Bible is just kind of an old, dusty book and is not relevant for today? And I used that question to turn their attention to 2 Timothy chapter 3, where the Scripture tells us that the Bible is given by inspiration of God, and it's what? Profitable. It's not that it was profitable. It is profitable. And uh, I was interested that just after that, I came in here, and Brother James was speaking on, in part from... Um, Psalm 100, I think it was, where it talked about God's truth enduring forever. That's another answer to their question. God's truth endures forever. It's not just for, you know, two thousand years ago or for four thousand years ago or whatever. This this is God's truth that endures forever. Anyway, we're going to uh, Ezekiel. Uh, Not Ezekiel, we're going to Jeremiah, I said, right? So we're going to turn to Jeremiah. I was in Ezekiel reading earlier, and we're in chapter 18 of Jeremiah. And I'd like to read the section, just the first handful of verses from here, and show us that God's grace is a restoring grace. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause you to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was making something at the wheel. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to make. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter, says the Lord? Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel." The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up and to pull down and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and plant it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good which I had said I would benefit it. Now, therefore, speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord. And then he goes on to explain how he is, for them, fashioning a disaster and devising a plan against them. And the obvious application immediately for them is, Hey, perk up your ears. God's made a promise that he will, by grace, restore you if you turn away from your sin. The entire chapter hinges on, of A18 here, chapter 18, hinges on the illustration of the potter's work. Understand, first of all, that the potter is in charge of the work. The clay doesn't cry out from the spinning wheel and say, why have you made me this way? (laughs) Exactly. God's sovereignty is pictured here. The potter is in charge. The vessel he is crafting comes into some state where it needs to be fixed or made into something better, and the potter does the necessary restorative work on the clay and makes it into a useful vessel. Even though, in, in the illustration, always illustrations are a little weak because they have some kind of point at which they break down. So the point at which this breaks down is you might say, well, maybe the the potter was the problem. You know, he he made an oops. You know, he put his hands just wrong and crushed that clay under his hands. Maybe he made a mistake and uh, you know messed up the clay. But even though that's the case in a human potter. In the human illustration, the divine potter can never fail. He never fails. God does not make mistakes. Flaws in the clay, perhaps, flaws in the wheel are responsible for some of the problem at the human potter's wheel. But every failure in real life is due to a failure in the clay, not in the potter, ever. That is, the people is where the fault is. Lies, But God explains to Jeremiah that the point of the illustration is, that, is what he does with nations. If a nation is living in sin, but here's God's judgment against it and repents, he will relent of the disaster he had planned. And you're one step ahead of me, brother. My notes have it right here. This sounds a lot like Nineveh, doesn't it? Now, we don't know how long their restoration occurred, but God did relent of the disaster which he had promised to them through Jonah. And, of course, that upset Jonah to no end, and he was a a pitiful uh, sight of a person after that because he didn't want God's grace to be operative toward wicked people. (laughs) Didn't he recognize that he needed God's grace too, and he was a wicked person, and he needed that favor, that help from God? That was the lesson. The promise for Israel was that God would restore the nation if it would turn from its wrong ways. He would bring them back from captivity. In fact, this was all foreshadowed in the prayer I alluded to earlier in 1 Kings 8. 1 Kings 8, remember the dedication of the temple. Solomon is there praying and he says, Lord, if your people stray from you and you take them off captive into a a faraway land and they turn their faces to pray toward this temple and to turn from their sins, hear them from heaven, and listen to them and restore them back to the place of this temple. Again, we notice that the failure is in the clay. The solution is in God. Now, this is speaking specifically of national work, of God's work among the nations, But do you suppose and maybe hope that this illustration of the potter has a personal application? I'm sure you're already thinking of it for yourself, a personal application. If God can do restoration for nations that repent, do you think he can do the same for individuals? Indeed, he can and he does. And and that, in a sense, can I say humanly speaking, he does with much less Effort than it takes to work on a nation. To just do a, just to work on a little individual is nothing for God. No real expenditure of energy for Him to help, to restore by His grace a sinner. Sin, you know, sin always ends up badly, no matter if you're a Christian or not. If you're not, of course, it ends up very badly. Very badly. The scripture tells us that whoever is living in sin, who's captured by sin, who's a slave to sin, not in Christ, will spend eternity apart from him. And this is why I say it ends up very badly. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. We hold him up to you as the solution for the sin problem that you have. But if you're a believer in Christ and you have a relationship with God through him, then your sins have been dealt with. They've been legally set aside from your account. You don't have uh, to, to fear that you're going to be condemned. But now you have a personal relationship with God. And if you know anything about relationships between people or people and God, you know that sin affects those relationships, now doesn't it? So when we say that our sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven at the cross, legally wiped off of our record, that does not say that they're meaningless or there's no consequences for us sinning against God now. There is a relational matter that has to be dealt with, not a legal matter now. If you're a believer, it will have, sin will have its effect one way or the other as well. It may be externally on your relationship with others, It may be that uh, there's a lack of harmony in your relationship with God. It will be that. It may be a defiled and guilty conscience. It may be physical consequences in your body or perhaps other consequences will arise. There's no no shortage of, of implications for the sin problem in our lives. But there's also no shortage of power in God to make your individual situation into something good and useful, just like he does with the nations. Remember that. There's no shortage of power in God. If he can do it with the nation, theoretically, let's say, uh, a faith theory here, not just a scientific theory, okay? Theoretically, God could cause a great revival in our land. You believe that? He could do that. Now, I don't know that he will do that as we draw close to the end of the age. Perhaps he will not, and perhaps we're in those final throes of of death to the world as it is until the tribulation comes and and then the Lord returns. But there's no shortage of power in the potter to remake the national clay, and he can do so for us individually as well. this, This... this is really where it comes to, why am I saying all this? Each one of us has had moments in our lives, time periods, spans of, of our lives, years perhaps, weeks, months, a bad week in which we have been broken down. And we need restoration, we need God's grace, we need His strength, we need His cleansing, we need is just this plain old restoration. And that comes to us because, first of all, there's no shortage of power in God to do that. And not only is there no shortage of power, there's no shortage of God's gracious favor driving the use of that power in your life. It's not like God can do something and he just sits there and says, huh, I'm going to let them figure this out themselves. No, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion, will bring that to completion. So God has a willingness to use his power in the situation of people who are in sin and then turn from sin. The grace of God will forgive, it will cleanse, it will help you through the consequences of that sin. Sometimes it will even help you through those consequences, all the time, really. I have plenty of power and a gracious willingness to help people who repent, but he has provided a place for your sins to be deposited so that we know we're not just pretending that our sins are forgiven. Christians have been charged, in fact, since the days of the Apostle Paul, Christians have been charged with this idea that the grace of God is just a whitewashing of sin. There's one key fact or factor that's left out of that analysis. Remember that analysis, Romans chapter 6? Well, if, if, why, why can't we just continue to sin so grace may abound? If grace just erases it, just washes it away, it's just gone. Why not just continue to sin? We don't do that because God has transformed us. He has changed us. and He's taken our sins, and He's actually done something with them. So to all those who would say that justification by grace through faith is based on a forensic pretend, listen, the sins of the believer, past, present, future, and especially those ones we've been struggling with now, when repented, confessed, You can imagine them just being taken from your shoulders and placed upon the cross on the shoulders of the man who bore our iniquities. Every one of your sins, all of your sin. And don't just think about them in a numerical fashion. Uh, We do use numbers sometimes to think about, well, you know, he, he forgave 15 of my sins. 16, 17, 18, as I continue to. Sin is not a numerical thing. It's an ethical thing. It's a moral thing. One sin has infinite weight. All of that weight pressing down upon Christ upon the cross. The weight being a picture of the wrath of God against sin. How could the earth, uh, how could the sun not hide its face on that day when he was upon the cross and the earth became dark? The wrath of God was poured out upon His beloved Son for our sins. We are not pretending that our sins are just gone, swept under the rug, hidden, uh, forgotten about because of some failure of memory. Our sins are, are dealt with, are paid for. The actual solution of the sin problem, God demonstrating it through His righteousness by the work of Christ on the cross, He bore our sins in his body on that tree so that we could be really forgiven, not just pretend forgiven, really forgiven. You with me? And we could really then live for righteousness instead of living for evil. This is why God calls upon us to turn to Christ and turn away from our desire and love for sin, all of our sins. Trusting in the Lord Jesus means that then God imputes our sins upon him and applies the blessings of forgiveness and justification and sanctification to us. That's how he takes a broken vessel and makes it into something beneficial. Let us pray and strive to be useful vessels for God. Second Timothy chapter 2: 20 and 22 talks about, you know, there are some vessels for dishonor, some for honor, but let's cleanse ourselves from these sins, these things, and be fit vessels for God's use. God will see to it. He has the power, the willingness, and he has a place for your sins to be put so that you do not have to carry them about in a broken vessel any longer. The second portion I want to take you to this morning is in the Psalms, and it's in Psalm 51. If you would turn there and follow along as we look. At These verses, the whole, the whole chapter, the whole psalm, really, we don't call them chapters per se, because they're each kind of standalone units, and I'll, I'll uh, give you a little um, inside baseball secret. I was sitting in my office having grandiose plans for how many different passages of scripture I was going to take you to this week, and I got to the second one, and it bogged me right down. I couldn't go any farther. Psalm 51. The design of the Psalms, by the way, is as a generic um, worship guide. It's not just that we should look at the Psalm and say, oh, well, that's about David, and that's about when he had this particular sin that he did. The reason that this is in the Scriptures is not just for that incident, it's for all such incidents that we experience in our lives. There's a general application to all of God's people. So we don't focus on David's sin. It's listed in the prologue here. We rather think of our own situation, our own situation. You know, David had his problems. Don't worry about those. You've got yours sitting in your chair right there right now, and we need to think about this and I hope often you have gone to Psalm 51 if you have fallen into sin, have succumbed to a temptation, and you have asked God to cleanse you like David does here. There's several things that David does in this psalm which are exemplary for us. And I say exemplary because Romans 15 and 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tell us that the Old Testament was written for our learning, for our admonition, for our example. And he wrote this for us. First of all, I want to talk about what the psalmist here uh, acknowledges. What he acknowledges is a pattern for what we need to acknowledge before God. First of all, it says in verses 3 and 4, he acknowledges his transgressions. In my sin, he says, I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. He transgressed in specific matters. And this transgression was primarily against God. When I say specific matters, I'm saying when you see the word transgression, it's like the crossing over of a boundary. You've been given a boundary, like no idolatry. Aaron stepped over that boundary. He transgressed that line. And so he needed to do this. He needed to have this passage, although he didn't have it in his time in history. But many uh, examples of, of you know, not only idolatry, but blaspheming God, taking the name of God in vain, of, of bearing false witness, of committing adultery in this particular case, of all kinds of other things, stealing, and so on. All of those breakings of the law are transgressions. So he specifically or crossed over a specific line that the scripture had laid out. This is always the case that sin, by the way, is primarily against God. And that's what he says here, against you and you only have I sinned. Well, that's a a manner of expression that's kind of hyperbole-like because he did sin against a woman and a man and his other leadership in the nation and ultimately against the whole nation. And so, but he says, really, it was God First of all, sin does affect us. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says a man who commits immorality, immorality commits a sin against himself. And it affects others around us, even those distant from us. The higher our office and the more people we serve, the bigger the impact of our sin. But transgression primarily reaches, among all these other things, the people that we touch and the things on this earth Sin really reaches up to heaven as an attack on God's holiness. You've got to see your sin, first of all, in light of, of God. You see, you don't compare yourself to everybody else and say, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm above average. I'm at least maybe a C plus or a B plus, you know. So I'll be okay. God doesn't grade on a curve. Is, is that a statement you've heard before? Yeah, we don't compare ourselves to that. We think about our sin in light of the holiness of God and how we fall short of the standard of the glory of the Lord. And so that's why I say sin really is like uh, something that reaches into heaven and is an attack on God's holiness. It's a self-centered expression of self-autonomy that wants self-gratification and self-elevation and ends in self-worship rather than worship of God. He acknowledges that he's transgressed. He also acknowledges, verse 5, that he is a sinner. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Okay? Very often people have, have stated and bears repeating, this does not mean that the act of conception is a sin. It means that the product of conception is another human being And when you have one human who is a sinner plus one human who is a sinner, they beget a what? One human who is another sinner. Okay. Except in one case in human history where there was not one person plus one person, there was one person plus the miraculous work of the Spirit upon Mary who bore a son named Jesus, and his was the Immaculate Conception. Not hers, not Mary's, but his. That's very misunderstood by millions and really billions of people on the earth today. His was the miraculous conception. Every other one, world history, brought forth in iniquity. There's a father, there's a mother, one way or the other. And in sin, my mother conceived me. Born in sin, from the moment of conception, he was a sinner. His mom and dad were. He is of the same sort as they are. We need to humbly recognize that fact. Just acknowledge it. This is what the psalmist does. I'm a sinner. I do sinful things. I have a sinful sinfully bent nature. And I want to kind of correct a you know word that sometimes people use. You know, they say, Well, we all make mistakes. This, mistakes are like It's not like you're on a math problem and you didn't, you know, you're doing your multiplication and you didn't line up everything just right and you added up numbers that weren't in the same column—a mistake. Okay, it's sin is not just a mistake. Okay, sin is a morally culpable choice that we make when we do not agree with God and His wishes for our lives. That's what sin is. You've got to think of it in its moral dimension, moral dimension as it relates to God. Against you and you only have I sinned, and I am a sinful person. Thirdly, the psalmist recognizes that God desires truth on the inside as well as on the outside. Look at verse 6. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. And in the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. He does not want us to be deceived. The problem with our nature is that it deceives us from the inside so that we think that sin is not a big deal. We want to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. We want to be right even when we're wrong. And self-deception is a problem. We had a whole message or two on self-deception, didn't we, some time ago? That a fascinating idea is very important for us to grab. You just have to, if you don't understand it, just understand this. We all have a measure of self-deception about our own goodness. It's a deep problem, deep, deep, deep in the heart of man, and it is a problem regardless of whether we recognize it or not. Now, it's better if you recognize it. Like, my heart is deceitful. I better be careful not to listen to my heart. Um, but the fact remains... It's deceitful whether you know it or not. So better to know it than not know it, because if you don't know it, you're going to be really lost. Fourthly, the author here acknowledges, verse 16 and 17, that God does not desire mere sacrifice. I call it mere sacrifice. He says in 16, For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering." The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. External acts of religion without internal reality make God sick. You get that? It makes him sick. He was sick of the nation of Israel's sacrifices when they had no heart in it. Or they'd go and they'd have... um, you know, the sacrifices, and then they'd go into the temple and have their little idolatrous feast. God saw that. Just imagine, if you will, that you come and, and offer to God a sacrifice in the Old Testament, or you come to God and you, you know, look good on Sunday and you sing out and everything looks good from the outside, but your life is moral filth on the inside. If, if you would... How would, you, how would you feel about bringing your external worship to church and bringing your hidden moral filth there for all to see at the same time? Just lay them both on the altar right here. That's how God sees your life. There's nothing hidden from Him, is there? He sees both, and that's why it makes Him sick. Now, if you're repenting of this filth, and you're trying to get rid of this filth, that pleases God. And then he can accept your worship. But the wicked he will not hear. So you do not desire mere externalism. He sees everything. He sees the dirt and he sees the so-called good. And when he sees both of them side by side, it kind of turns them off to the whole thing. You know? We've got to turn away from that. Now, what when he says a contrite, heart that is a that is an excellent word contrite we don't use that word enough i think you know like we lost you know we lost what it means to be ashamed or to feel guilt in some cases in our culture to be contrite means to repent simply to know that you are guilty to be contrite means that you recognize you have offended god and perhaps also your fellow man your parents your children uh, fellow uh, believers in the church, to be contrite means you're willing to admit that you're wrong. Honey, I was wrong. Mom, I I did what I shouldn't have done. Please forgive me. I am sorry. Boy, when you work with marriage counseling or any any kind of personal interactions, I can almost just, you know... Just sit there and say, okay, how are you doing with saying the words I'm sorry? Uh, That's a challenge. How about I forgive you? Uh, That's a challenge. There's the problem right there. You don't have to go any farther. Start working right there. If there's not contrition and then there's not return of forgiveness, man, you've got problems. Contriteness is not defending yourself. It's not justifying the wrong you did. It's not saying, well, you know, they or somebody else or whatever no it's me contrite to be contrite means you have remorse but not just remorse sincere remorse you know the difference oh i got caught rats no i i wasn't supposed to be doing that my heart is dirty I shouldn't have been involved in that sin. I shouldn't have fallen to that temptation. I shouldn't have said that mean word to my wife, my husband, my child, my dad, my mom. It means you really grasp and admit that what you did is disobedient to God. That's what contriteness means, really contrite. And so that's what God wants for us. So the psalmist acknowledged he's a sinner. He's transgressed against God. God doesn't want... Externalism only. He wants truth in the inner parts of our heart. But then the psalmist also asked God for some things. And this is where I'd like to park for about another half an hour, but I'm going to have to keep moving us along. The psalmist asked God for mercy, first of all. Notice verse 1. Have you ever started out a prayer just like this? You don't even start with, you know, our Father in heaven or something like that. Have mercy upon me, O God. I, you know, He doesn't say it, but this is how we say it in English. I have blown it. According to your loving kindness, please have mercy upon me. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly. So he asks for mercy. Here's the cry of a repentant heart, not just a foxhole prayer for deliverance in a crisis. Uh, there are many... Many times the Bible has this. I'll give you for homework those verses to look up there and under letter B, number 1, page 4 in the notes there. Look at how many times the Bible uses this phrase, have mercy on me, have mercy on me, O God. And note well, too, oh, by the way, probably the most famous of those, Luke 18. The tax collector goes up to the temple and he won't even look up to heaven and he says, Father, be merciful to me, a sinner. He knew he was a sinner. You can see by the description the Lord gives of him that he's really contrite. He's not like the Pharisee next door, as it were, who didn't have any feeling of sinfulness in his heart. Note well that God in Christ is merciful. God is propitiated in Christ. He has been merciful in him. If somebody wants the proof of God's mercy... Just show them the cross. That's all that's needed. He's merciful. Second of all, the scripture, oh, and God wants us to be merciful too, by the way, right? You be merciful as your Father in heaven is as well. Secondly, the psalmist asks in the, in, the, in the throes of this contrition and repentance and guilt and remorse, he asks not only for mercy, but he asks for cleansing. Look at all the words that refer to this. Blot out my transgressions. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly. Also verse 2, cleanse me from my sin. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Verse number 9, hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. It's all different language to say the same thing. Verse number 10, it says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. All of these words, blotting out, clean, renew, are all ways of expressing the author's desire for purification from the dirt of sin and its guilt. You know when you sin against God, you feel the distance, don't you? You feel the distance. You feel the dirtiness of that sin. But likewise, you can also feel the cleansing of that sin. You know that... Feeling of relief when you realize, thank God, He took care of my sin in Christ, and I don't have to bear it forever, carry it into eternity. He took it away. I've been cleansed. Thirdly, the psalmist asked God for joy mercy, cleansing, and joy. Look at verse 8. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Verse number 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. The psalmist was in misery when he was living in sin, wasn't he? Miserable. He did not have happiness. Look at Psalm 32. His bones felt like they were rotting away. He was just so heavily burdened inside. Save people who have fallen into a pattern of sin or some egregious instance of sin lose the joy of their salvation and David wanted that back and so do we when we struggle against sin my friends you don't have to be a joyless christian we have a lot to be joyful about but i'm not just advocating for an inspirational you know perk up and uh, god's wonderful you know you should be joyful Kind of thing. This text is telling us we can be joyful knowing that we are forgiven, that though we sinned and though God is holy, he has placed our sins upon our Savior and allowed us to be cleansed and to have mercy and to be washed and to have our sins blotted out. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then true deep-seated joy follows that as we rest in the grace of God. Fourthly, the psalmist asks for closeness to God. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. He says, do not not cast me away from your presence. Oh, I don't want to be far from the house of God. I don't want to be driven away from God's presence in the house of the Lord where I can worship and offer sacrifice. I want to be close to God. Sin makes you feel not only dirty, but also that distance from God. Isaiah 59 sin has separated you from God, estranged your relationship with Him, but that doesn't have to continue. Confess with genuine confession and be brought back into closeness with God. Maybe you've never confessed your sin to God. Now's the perfect time to do that. Do it like this. Just tell God, God, I know I'm a sinner. I've heard this from the Bible. The pastor's talking about it right now, and I know it's true. Don't just take my word for it. Your conscience knows that you are a sinner. Why? Because God put that conscience in you. He put it there for a reason, to get your attention. And he's calling you in the gospel to believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose again from the dead so that you could have those sins washed, cleansed, removed, blotted out, and you'll be brought into the family of God. If you're a Christian, you already know the blessing of closeness to God. You've experienced it before, haven't you? But then there's some days when it's not so much, not so close. You can get back there too. Don't cast me away from your presence, God. I want to be close to you. I want to be in harmony. I want to be in Without, in a, clo- a close relationship without that sin that, that damages a personal connection to God. In David's case, he's talking here about the ministry of the Spirit that's the theocratic anointing. I'm going to let you read that. I'm not going to go over that again. Um, but it's an important situation for him as the leader of the nation. Five, he asks for deliverance from guilt. The guilt, notice in verse 14, this is heavy. Deliver me from the guilt of, bloodshed. Bloodshed. I was just like those whose feet are swift to shed blood. My behavior was no different than that. This is a heavy guilt. This is a heavy, heavy, heavy guilt. Can you imagine the guilt that a, newly born-again doctor who is involved in Planned Parenthood and abortion would feel. Even that guilt is cared for on the cross of Jesus Christ. You're listening and you say, I can't. I'm in, I'm in prison for what I've done. Yeah? Well, you can be a Christian in prison. <laughs> you can be saved in prison. You can be washed from your sins in prison. And maybe you're not in prison, but you're soul is in bondage because you know maybe, well, I ought to be there in prison or I ought to be in God's prison because I've I've really sinned. You can be delivered from that guilt. To be delivered from guilt is another act of God's mercy, and it happens when you trust in Christ. God transfers your sin and its guilt to Him and does not hold it against you any longer. That's what forgiveness is, not holding sin against you anymore. And then finally, the psalmist requests two things that he would be able to impact others. Look at verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. And then 14b and 15, he says, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and I will show forth your praise. Unconfessed sin dampens your usefulness to God and toward others. Graciously, God permits us to serve him, even in our remaining sinfulness. You're not hearing somebody up here at the pulpit who says, I've gotten rid of all my sin and here I am before you telling you how to do it. That's not the case. God is gracious and permits us, even in our remaining immaturity and sin, to serve him. But our effectiveness is heavily damaged as we fall into sin and temptation. God calls us to be holy ministers. But I broaden from the idea of minister to church members, Christians in general. And I tell you, I can't recount the number of times that I've seen people who have been involved in some sin, either a practical sin, a practice, or a doctrinal error and they've been trapped in that and thus useless to God and useless to others for God. It par- these things paralyze people from doing good. One of the most common examples is somebody who gets into this cycle of self-doubt and grief because they're not looking at Christ for salvation, they're looking at themselves and they have no assurance And yet probably they do have some sin in their lives, which is degrading their assurance, as it always does. But they're looking at themselves, and they're saying, how do I know that I'm saved, and I'm not sure, and all of this? And and they're just spinning their wheels, and it's like the mud is flying out behind the the vehicle, but they're not going anywhere. And they're, they're losing effectiveness for God. That constant doubt and not looking to Christ, that's a sin too but there can be all kinds of other examples. And this is just where the, where, where the world and where Satan wants you to be, spinning your wheels. If you're a Christian, well, at least we got him spinning his wheels. We don't have to worry about him doing anything useful. Just let him spin there for a while. He'll, he'll, he'll take care of himself. Secondly, the psalmist asks uh, not only that he would be useful for God toward others to teach transgressors his ways, But he he prays that God will be pleased and honored by his work, that is, God's work, in Jerusalem and in the righteous sacrifices of others. Now, this is where it's very specific to the context in which David lives when he says in 18 and 19, Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, and they shall offer bulls on your altar. So... The king could once again take a leading role in, in worship, helping the others come before God and sacrifice before he was unable to do that. He couldn't lead anybody. Why, he couldn't even lead himself. His life was a mess. And other people would scoff at him, who knew Nathan, other leaders in Israel, who knew exactly what he had done to cover up his sin, he was ineffective in his spiritual life. But now As he comes to God in contrition, he could be useful once again. After the sinner has confessed and been cleansed, he's much more able to impact others for God. Now, another passage I was going to look at, we can't this morning, but you can, is Psalm 32. So meditate on Psalm 32 as a closure to this message, uh, part of your continuing spiritual education. We've learned from Jeremiah and the Psalms Here we we are challenged to forsake sin and to be grateful that we have such a merciful and forgiving God as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then you would experience what David experienced when he said, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. That's the kind of blessedness and joy that we're talking about this morning. I pray that it will be your portion as you show that real contrition to God for your sin. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you will cleanse us, that you will draw us close to yourself, that you will help us to know that our transgression is first and foremost against you. Help us to know that you are gracious, not only with power, but willingness to forgive and to cleanse and to blot out our sin, and that there's a place where our sin can be put Upon Jesus Christ and properly dealt with because he died for it in our place. He took the penalty, the, the, the sentence against evil was executed against him who had done no evil. Thank you for that, Lord, and we pray that we will find our joy and our glory in him who is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray, amen.